actually the bigger key to success than a degree or an expertise that you've developed. It is nailing the compass that is inside of you that is going to dictate and determine how you live your life, how you approach challenges, how you approach success, and how you're able to navigate a life that is fulfilling. Hey everyone, this is Ashley Menzies Babatunde, and welcome to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. This week, we have such an amazing guest, Mackenzie Thomas. She is like a big sister to me. She's a mentor, and she's had so many life pivots, so she's perfect for No Straight Path. And I'd love to tell you a bit about Mackenzie. So she is currently the Director of Operations for the Ads and Business Products at Meta, This team slash org is responsible for creating products and solutions that help millions of businesses reach their customers across Facebook, Instagram, and other meta products. Prior to this role, Mackenzie worked on the cross-company strategic initiatives team where she led the development of some of Meta's most complex cross-functional initiatives, including the creation of the Oversight Board. The Oversight Board is a first-in-industry global institution that provides independent oversight to Meta's content, moderation decisions, and policies. It's a really important work. And prior to joining Meta, McKenzie was actually an attorney, that's where we met in law school, at Cooley, where she represented emerging growth technology companies and their investors in a variety of transactions, including company formation, seed investments, venture capital financings, mergers and acquisitions, debt offerings, and public offerings. Yes, a lot, a lot, a mouthful, <laughs> but also really helpful and important work for business growth. And earlier in her career, Mackenzie was a clothing and accessories buyer for the retail chain Bloomingdale's. So in that role, Mackenzie managed a team that drove multi-million dollar sales and profit through successful maintenance of vendor relationships, long-term business forecasting, and term negotiations. She earned her JD from Harvard Law School, where she received the Dean's Award for Committee Leadership for her dedication to community and student advocacy. Mackenzie also holds a BA summa cum laude from Howard University, and that's actually where she met her husband, Marcus Thomas. Yes, in addition to all this, she's a whole wife (laughs) and a new mom, and she's also been helping her husband build his business over the years, Marcus Alexander. Marcus Alexander is a design-forward footwear brand servicing those who demand exceptional design without sacrificing beauty and versatility. And I have to say, I'm not even a sneakers person, but they're very stylish. Anyway, as expected, this conversation with Mackenzie was so insightful, and we just have a lot of overlap in our lives. She's experienced so many things just a few steps ahead of me, and she provides such sound advice. Our relationship is also indicative of what I aim to explore in this podcast, telling stories of those who are mid-journey. Guests may be just a few steps ahead of you in their journey and their experience, and I think you'll find that proximity really useful. All right, let's get to Mackenzie's story. All right. I am so excited to have my like big sister, I would say, and mentor, Mackenzie Thomas with us today. So let's just, you know, dig right into it. First off, I just, I know a lot about you, but I actually don't know about your childhood. And I would love to know about how you grew up and how people would describe you as a child and how perhaps Mm. that informs the person 
that you are today and the work that you do today. Uh, it might not, but let's get to know little Mackenzie. Awesome. So happy to be here with you today. And I love thinking about my childhood because it was such a good childhood. And I feel so blessed to be able to say that because I think having a good childhood is one of the keys to setting you on just a, a path to an abundant life. I and mean, I owe that all to, to God and to my parents. I grew up in a town suburb right outside of Philadelphia and two-parent household, very close with my mom and my dad. And I had an older sister who was about seven years older than me. So we grew up together, but at the same time, by the time I went off to like sixth grade, she was already out of the house. So we had like together childhoods and then separate childhoods where we developed into our own individual people. And I would say I was always very observant as a child. I was a little bit more fearful as a kid. Like I was the kid who was afraid of dogs and Chuck E. Cheese and characters and things like that. But a part of that is me always kind of being aware of my surroundings and making sure that I felt safe and good. And I think that instinct has made me just be really good at identifying good and bad things for myself throughout my life. You know, people learn lessons about life and how they want to approach life in different ways. Some people need to experience it. And the analogy I like to give is the stove is hot, don't touch it. Some people need to go touch the stove to see if it's hot before they learn their lesson. I've always been the person who can look at the stove, say it's hot and say, you know what? I don't need to touch the stove. I'm good. I love so, that. <laughs> I so, feel like that was me. That was yes. me as well. No, because, and now that I think about it, while you said that you were afraid of dogs and Chuck E. Cheese, like I was afraid of those things as well, but I didn't think of any, I didn't have any introspective thoughts about it. <laughs> I just thought me I was a little, a little fearful child. <laughs> me too. Especially because I grew up to be very extroverted and super social. And I have done a lot of things that my friends and family haven't done. So I, you wouldn't think that it would go that way, but it does. And so I think that was me early on kind of developing that skill and just not knowing what to do with it at two years old, for instance. But I was always very communicative, chatty. <laughs> when my mom would pick me up from daycare, I would talk from the moment she picked me up to the moment we got home all the way through dinner, just telling her about my day, who's who, what's happening. They used to call me little Oprah. And interestingly enough, it's my communication skills that have really led me through all of my successes in life, both I think personally and professionally, because I'm able to connect with people because I've been perfecting this. I feel like since I was a child, just because it came naturally to me and also helped me process things as well, because I wasn't afraid to emote and say how I was feeling. <laughs> my mom gave me this story one day, and I guess I was really frustrated when she was giving me a bath. And she was like, Kenzie, what is, what is wrong with you? And I was like three. And I told her, I was like, can't I just feel what I'm feeling? <laughs> and she was like, what did this three-year-old just tell me? But... <laughs> You did not say that. I did. Three. Wow. I, I did, apparently. But it was like a signal of how closely I was aware of what was going on inside of me. I think that's been uh, just super helpful in kind of helping me navigate my life. So that's me, little Mackenzie, and always into a lot of different things. 
wanted to go to all the parties, wanted to be with all the people, wanted to do gymnastics and dance and field hockey and church choir and anything and everything. Just wanting to be out having a good time and like experiencing all of life. Oh, that's amazing. And it seems like you're certainly doing that now, which is wonderful. (laughs) Haven't changed. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. And did you have any childhood aspirations when it came to your career or didn't, you know, just like, how did you get to where you are today? I know that's a very big question. (laughs) Did you know where you wanted to be? Did you know where you wanted to go to college? Yes. Some of those things I did. So I always knew I was going to have to use my talking skills in whatever I was going to be doing. And so at some points in my childhood, I thought I was going to be on TV, like a TV host or a broadcast journalist or an anchor. At other points, I thought I was going to be a lawyer or an advocate because I loved debating and going back and forth. My dad used to call me the negotiator because every single time I asked for something, I would try to negotiate a way to get his answer to be better than what I thought it was. But I didn't necessarily like settle on a specific career in my mind at any particular time, which makes sense since I've had like three or four so far in my life. I did, however, know that I wanted to go to an HBCU. I knew that from, I don't even know. I was just surrounded by people in my life, mostly my family, but also my parents' friends who went to an HBCU. My parents went to Morgan State. My sister went to Morgan State. My aunts and uncles went to Howard, Hampton, FAMU. And there was just never an image of my mind where I wouldn't wind up in an HBCU because the village that raised me came out of that. And when I applied to colleges, I applied to a ton, not a ton, like eight, (laughs) but like half were HBCUs. And then the other half were like other top tier schools for sure. And I had lots of hard decisions between like IVs and HBCUs or, and I still knew it from the day I got accepted to Howard that I was going to go there. So that's amazing. And I, that's one regret, you know, you have regrets in life. This is one of them for me Mm -hmm. is that I never had an HBCU experience. Like I wish I would have Stanford had this program where you could do a semester at an HBCU Yes. And yes, but I, you know, I chose Spain and I just, I always chose abroad. But Mm -hmm. (laughs) when I talk to my friends who went to an HBCU, there's this, there's something about the education that they got and about their confidence and just the way that they move through the world as a black person Mm -hmm. that I really admire. And there's just an education that I'm lacking, that I'm trying to get and like catch up that I, that I think would have been nice that I could have gotten at HBCU. So I'd love to hear just about that experience and how that really informs who you are today. Yeah, it informs who I am and who I am informs the career path that I've, that I've gone on is how I would say it. And I had no idea that going to Howard was going to be the gift that it was. I just knew it felt right at the time. And I was making the right decision for me where I was in my life. But that time period, 18 to 22, it's like the most formidable years for a person. And you're vulnerable, but you're curious. You have this ability if you kind of go to school in a new place where you can reinvent yourself because you're not taking your reputation or whatever it is that you were in your hometown or from high school or whatever it is. And you really get to, for the first time, have this freedom 
to mold yourself into who you are. And at 18 years old, it's kind of dangerous. <laughs> you can go in a lot of different ways. So being in an environment that is going to nurture you in the ways that you need, give you the freedom and the latitude that you need to be able to develop your decision-making skills, your judgment, your intuition, to develop your discipline, which has to come from within. It's like a really fascinating experiment. And I think for Black Americans, HBCUs does that in spades better than any other community that I've ever seen. And so when I went to Howard, I changed my major three times. (laughs) What were the majors? Well, I started off undecided because I couldn't make my decision. And then I switched to broadcast journalism, I think like midway through my freshman year. I didn't like the classes. And then I decided to switch to a legal communications major, which is like a communications and culture type of degree with a little bit of like pre-law mixed in there. And I stuck with that. And one thing about me is I can, I might not know what I want all the time, but I can quickly identify what I don't want. And I'm very quick to move out of that if I can spot that. So that was kind of my journey my freshman year. And I didn't feel insecure about owning that and saying, you know, I don't know exactly what it is. I know that I'm going to graduate in four years and I know that I have a limited amount of time to figure this out, but I'm figuring it out. And so I felt safe doing that at an HBCU. And I think that was kind of the constant reoccurring theme is always feeling safe and protected. I met my best friends there. I met my husband there and I grew up there. And one of the things that HBCUs do better than anybody else, and I think is actually more important during your college years, is it helps you find who you are and it helps you feel really confident and secure in who that person is. And that's actually the bigger key to success than a degree or an expertise that you've developed. It is nailing the compass that is inside of you that is going to dictate and determine how you live your life, how you approach challenges, how you approach success, and how you're able to navigate a life that is fulfilling. And so for me, I noticed that in spades, when I went to my first job in New York City. And I was in this assistant buyer training program at Bloomingdale's. I just want to stop you really quickly because that was just really powerful what you said. So I need listeners to just stop, (laughs) (laughs) take it in because that is so amazing. And I wonder, is it, do you think just the safety, did it feel like an extension of family? At least when I went to college, I've always felt really safe in the Black community, like those Mm -hmm. those spaces. And went in law school too. And we could talk a little bit about that later. Black Law Students Association, that's how we got, became friends. Uh, That safety in that community, and you had it at your entire school, which is just incredible. But I guess I would love to hear a little bit more of just like, why did you feel that? And then I would love to hear this Bloomingdale story because it sounds like it's going to be a good one. It's a simple answer that you know, maybe folks have heard before, but most successful Black people who make it to college come from environments where they were one of the very few. They were the tops of their classes, or they were in special classes. They were in gifted. They were in honors. And 
you know, they had all these extracurricular activities that helped develop them and set them on a career path. They were always the exception, whether you went to an Ivy or an HBCU or a state school, whatever it is. When you get to Howard, everybody's exceptional. (laughs) Everybody's capable. You're no longer this fish in this pond where you were the only little brown dot. And if you welcome that, then you realize that you have the freedom to no longer represent for anybody other than yourself. So for the longest time, you have been the poster child for being the Black, smart, successful kid. You get to be surrounded by Black, smart, successful people. You get to be taught by Black, smart, successful people. You get to be humbled by a Black, smart, successful environment. And you realize that your only job is figuring out who you are. That is liberating and a freedom that most Black people never get the opportunity to experience. And even going to an HBCU, I've only had that experience in that four-year time period because the second I entered the working world, that changed. I'm sorry, I did cut you off. You're about to tell an interesting story. Bloomingdale's. Bloomingdale's, yes. So I didn't know what I wanted to do after college. The only thing I knew is that I wanted to move to New York City and live there and work there. You'll see this pattern with me is that like, I know the life that I want to live. And then I kind of enter a career space that affords me what that is. And so my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, was like, well, you are super business minded, great critical thinker, you're great at math, but you also love, you have this creative side. And so he was like, why don't you look into buying? And I was like, that's a good point. Got an internship one year and then got a full-time job following school. I really loved it. But at that time, I mean, retail and fashion is still like a nutty industry, you know, (laughs) in many different ways. But at that time, you know, the approach to diversity inclusion in the corporate America was not at all what it is today. And the types of things that would fly on an everyday basis was baffling to me when I look back. When I went and started in 2008, which was also when there was a big recession hitting. So everybody was on edge and lots of people were losing their jobs, including people who started with me. We had like a training class of about 15 people and five of us were black women. And that was huge. Like a third of the class was black women. I was the only one that went to an HBCU. The rest of them all went to like super top tier schools, IVs and and other ones. But I was the only one that was an HBCU grad. And the pressure of the recession, the pressure of being in a high-paced environment and not having a ton of support, we had a lot of responsibility very early on, <laughs> which is kind of crazy. And we worked really hard. It was, it was very challenging. It was probably like just as challenging as any banking or consulting or any type of job. A year later, maybe 18 months, I was the only one still standing who hadn't quit or been asked to exit of all the, all the Black women. And I thought that that was interesting because the only thing that was different about me was where I went to school. And there was something to that. And there was a lesson to me about what Howard gave me, which is this thick skin to be able to define myself separately from how the circumstances I was in were defining me and the people around me were defining me. And I think that's what eventually got a lot of them was not being able to relate to their peers that were 
in that program that were working to the people who could be mentors or sponsors for them, but they weren't because they were all white and privileged in a lot of ways. And I just kind of kept rolling because I was never seeking that from them. I was never seeking that validation. I was never seeking that approval. And I felt good about what I was doing and just kept doing it day in and day out. And I think Howard really taught me that. Although McKinsey had made it, she was one of the five Black women still at the company as a buyer after a year. She quickly realized that this career was not the right fit for her. After being promoted, she started to see the lives of those in positions more senior to her. And she said that none of them looked happy. None of them looked fulfilled. And they all seemed on edge, afraid of losing their jobs. And I said, I don't want to be anybody here. I looked around. Nobody inspired me. Nobody gave me an example of who I wanted to be. And I said, well, that's not enough. I'm going to have to get out. So... I would say after a year at Bloomingdale's, even though I was there for four years, I started putting into place and into motion what was going to be my next step. Now, one of the things that I always do is make sure that I am doing the most I can where I am to develop myself. So while I was there, and since I was on a pretty successful path at Bloomingdale's, I said, well, I want to go to grad school and that's going to require preparation. So... I need a year for preparation to study. And I was deciding between law school and business school because I wasn't sure which one I wanted to do, but I love optionality. So <laughs> law school won yeah. because <laughs> lawyers can do anything that people who have business like MBAs can, but MBAs can't do the law job. They can't do what JDs can. So I was like, I'm going to do that. That required LSAT classes and all that other stuff. So now once I made that decision around the end of year two, it's putting that preparation in to like actually take the classes. I took, I think, test masters and I was in class for four hours each twice a week, studying all weekend on Saturday and Sunday, really dedicating time for, I think, like a two, three month period and then applying to schools in like the third year I was at Bloomingdale's. And the plan was to leave after my third year. I was doing so well at Bloomingdale's that I was about to be up for a buyer promotion. And making buyer at like 25 years old is a huge feat. Like it's like a big deal. It means you've been actively promoted very quickly every single 12 months that you've been there. And I got all my acceptances. And then I was like, I told my parents, I said, I'm going to defer a year because I have to do this buyer job. And they were like, you're going to do what? (laughs) You're going to defer Harvard because you want to be a buyer? I said, yes, because if I don't do that, I can't have this wonderful experience in my resume to say that I managed a multi-million dollar business at the age of 25. And I was able to manage assistant buyers and become a manager of people super early on. And they were like, I don't get it. I was like, I do. Don't worry about it. (laughs) I love that response. I love that. (laughs) I was totally afraid to tell them. I talked to my godfather about it because I was like, I don't know what to do. He was like, they're going to be upset, but you got to stick to it. And so I did that, but I stayed on my path. I still wound up going to law school, but I got this wonderful experience for like nine months that wound up being super fruitful once I entered back into the work world. And I can tell them this experience that I had. So that's why I did the transition, essentially. That's amazing. 
So you have a lot of transitions. Uh, (laughs) So we just highlight a few of them, but I would love to know a little bit just about your experience at Harvard once you got there. Because when I got there, you were a 3L, I was a 1L, you're president of the Black Law Students Association, you were and still are goals. And (laughs) we all looked up to McKinsey. And so I would just love to hear about how that experience was for you. Yeah, it was different than I had expected it to be, but in a better way. I didn't really have high hopes that Harvard was going to match up to Howard at all. What I didn't expect was that I was going to leave with such wonderful friends that hold such a huge place in my heart and will be my friends forever. So I thought that that was like reserved for undergrad only. (laughs) Not at all. Going to law school is like pledging. So (laughs) you go through something deep with people and that bonds you for life. When I got to Harvard, I was excited. I never thought that I would get in. Like I just applied because I was like, why not? (laughs) And then I got in, which is why I tell people just apply and see what happens. Never thought I would get in. So I think I got there just excited to be able to experience something that I didn't necessarily think was on the cards, but thought enough to try, if that makes sense. And the first week was super intense. And I don't know if it was just my section, but I think this was everybody. I remember having like anywhere between 120 pages of casework to like read every single night, which I thought was the most ridiculous thing in life. And I was like, how in the world am I going to get through this? This is insane. And I remember seeing like three, four or five people drop out of my section that week. And that's like a little daunting, like, wow, because you have this time period, right? Where people can leave before they're charged for the whole semester. I was like, people are really deciding like, this is not for them and leaving. And I never thought that wasn't going to be for me. Like I was committed, but it was a little confusing on how I was going to get through this. So I said, well, I'm going to do everything I can each day and try each day and then see what happens. And one of the things I discovered really early was how competitive people were, whether it was how they were answering in Socratic method or how they liked to talk about what they were reading. And it was a lot. And I was like, who's going to be my ally? Who's going to be my friend? And I didn't wait for people to welcome me into their crews. I just created my own. I spotted people whose spirits spoke to me, who felt laid back, who had a sense of levity, who cared about their work, but seemingly knew who they were and they were just good people. And I just started collecting them. Most of them happened to be minorities. So I think it's something to flag there, but true. And that became my study group. (laughs) And that's also my, my best friends from law school today is my 1L study group. And I remember becoming known in my section for spearheading the largest study group that anybody's ever seen. And nobody understood how we could accomplish anything because we didn't limit our study group to like three or five people. And that's because whenever somebody didn't have a study group to go to, I would welcome them. Come on in. This is a community. And this is like who I am, but this is also what Howard taught me. Yeah. And I just love that because just to give people some context, 
law school is extremely competitive, mm-hmm. but this whole study group thing can become a big deal. I yes. was a legal writing advisor. And so I got to see different cohorts of 1L students go through it and experience it myself. And there were like study group, like draw, there was study group drama. That's what I would call mm-hmm. it. <laughs> and a lot of it was because there was this exclusivity. Yeah. You, know, like you can be in this study. You can't, you know, this is, and it was a little bit of like judgment based on whether or not they thought you could perform and whether or not you'd be an asset to the team, to the study group. Whew. And the fact that you were so welcoming, I think is just so wonderful. And I think that it certainly isn't improved and every study group or every section is different. Mm-hmm. And we actually did some exercises. I noticed, so my first year, we didn't do any team building exercises with our 1Ls. You know, so they went in thinking like, Socratic method, Gunner, like this is mm-hmm. how we're just supposed to be. And so there was a lot of challenges there where the second year that I was a BSA, I said, you know, we have to do something here. Like, mm-hmm. can we talk to professors? So we talked to Professor Hansen, John Hansen, who does a lot of really interesting work. And we did team building skills. We explained to everyone, this is collaborative. My students came out with t-shirts that said sticky because they said they were stuck to each other. (laughs) It was so cute. They like all loved each other. It was just a family. That's amazing. Yeah, it was, it was so incredible. And it was that the difference in the introduction to each Mm -hmm. other and how important that is. And it's so great that you were able to create that community and be so open and welcoming to other people. I love that. That was my way of surviving law school identifying really early on that the game that most people were playing was not a game that I was ever going to win. So I had to play my own game and trust that one. And that's what I did. And that's how I navigated the rest of law school was constantly just playing my own game, playing by my own rules. And that starts with like knowing who you are, knowing what's important to you, knowing where you value life, people, and knowing whose opinion matters. And it's not many people. (laughs) It's God and my parents and my friends and the people whose characters I respect the most. That's so amazing. And I think we're going to have to do, I'm looking at the time, I'm going to have to do a part one, part two. Sorry, Mackenzie, because I feel like you have a lot of lessons that we need to discuss. But before we get there, I really need to get to where you are today. So we got to get to what happened (laughs) after law school. You found yourself, I believe, at a big law firm. Can you tell us about that experience and a little bit about that transition? Yeah, let's talk about that. There's so much packed in there, but I'll try to keep it speedy. So to the point earlier about being my own compass this entire time, I always knew I was going to go to a law firm. Because I wanted law firm experience, but I also wanted the law firm salary. (laughs) I didn't grow up rich and I wanted to be able to provide for myself and my family. And generational wealth building is really important to me. So I said, let's do that. And again, applying to these law firms and interviewing is a very competitive process. And when I chose the firm that I was going to, which is Cooley, which is like one of the top firms for venture capital... I remember a lot of students being like, oh, that's an interesting choice. Like, why didn't you choose like one of these top three or four or five? That's not what I wanted to do. (laughs) I didn't want to do that. I didn't care about having something on my 
resume that just said successful. I wanted to be able to enjoy it. So I chose successful in the realm that I wanted to be successful in, which was working for startup companies. So I went to Cooley, really, really chose it because I loved the people that I worked with and I'm still friends with them today and really loved my experience. I only though spent 20 months (laughs) at the firm, which is not very long. I made it almost through two years. And I went through a lot of life transitions at that time period. I got married. I lost my father. And I was starting a new career that was very challenging, very time-consuming, very stressful. Any big law job is like all of those things. And I think with all of that happening at the same time, I was oscillating between moments of sheer joy and pure desperation. And some of that was informed by my exhaustion. Some of that was informed by feeling just relatively uncomfortable with the fact that I knew I could not do this forever and be the person that I wanted to be because I was not my best self. I couldn't be my best self. I was too tired. And what I was sacrificing wasn't worth what I was getting back from the firm. It was fine if I only cared about money, but I didn't only care about money. And there are way better ways to make money in this world than killing yourself day in and night. So I would say, I remember taking my first vacation after my father had passed about a year after. It was April of 2017. My first vacation at the firm. I'd been working there for over a year and a half. That's a shame, just to say that. And It was the first time I was able to separate and reflect. And I got sick on my vacation because I was working myself till like 4 a.m. every day before I went up into the vacation that I couldn't actually enjoy the vacation because I was sick on it. And I was like, all right, something's got to give. And I came back and I was like, this isn't going to work. Same thing I did at Bloomingdale. Let's put the plan in place for what the next steps are. Start calling people. Just try to get an understanding of how to navigate out of this. And I didn't know what I wanted to do next, but I was at the point where I was like, I don't want to do this. So it's okay if my next step isn't my forever step. Just needs to be a next step. And I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer. I didn't love the role of the service provider. I did not like being a service provider that was on the clock and at the whims of your client. I also wanted to be more closely aligned with business and judgment and decision-making and strategy. And Harvard came in handy. And I was connected to some really great alumni, one of which happened to be the former general counsel of Facebook at the time. And he was really just helping me kind of navigate and think through what my next steps could be. And I talked to a bunch of other people who told me, well, you're going to have to go in-house and then work in-house as an attorney. And then maybe you can switch over to the business side. But Colin, who I spoke to, was like, well, give me your resume because it doesn't even sound like you want to be a lawyer. I said, I don't. I want to skip that step and jump to the next step, which is like, how can I do, you know, more of a strategic job on the business side of the house? Circulates my resume. I get a call. And it's an introductory call that's just like, you know, oh, we just want to see what you want to do, what you're interested in. And I love those questions because it was like, this is how I want to enter my next phase in my career, which is like really defining what looks right for me, what my day-to-day looks like, what looks fulfilling, and then finding the role that that matches that. And they had a new team that they were building. (laughs) And I interviewed with the hiring manager who is now my ultimate mentor and the first and only person I've ever worked for who I want to emulate and still do. 
And we hit it off. And next thing you know, I wind up joining a strategic initiatives team that was brand new at Facebook at the end of 2017 and flew me and my husband across the world, across the country to start in California. And the thing that I think is so important that I don't want to lose about this story is when everybody said I was going to have to go the route of doing law first in-house and then switching over to business, what they weren't accounting for was the four years I had building a career at Bloomingdale's where I ran and managed a business. Look look at God. That's like a look at God moment. I just have to say. Listen, and it was one of those moments where it was like, I told you parents that this was going to pay off. And it was something about the maturity and the experience that I got getting to that point that allowed me to skip a step later because I had done everything I could in that earlier step. So yeah, that's what I did. And I did that for three years. I built some amazing, amazing things and traveled all around the world And now I am in a different type of job, but it's essentially like a COO of a major product org within the company. So I'm the director of operations for our ads and business products team, which oversees over 5,000 product managers and engineers who build all of our monetized products. And I run leadership operations for that org. And I'm getting the opportunity to help with the strategic planning and execution of the monetizing engine of one of the companies one of the world's largest and most successful companies. And nobody could have told me, I don't know, (laughs) five, 10 years ago that this is what I would be doing. But all the experiences that I've had have built up and allowed me to be ready for this moment and step into them. Thank you for listening to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. Remember to share this episode with friends and family. And if you like what you hear, please go on to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts to rate the show. It helps other listeners find No Straight Path. Let's spread the message, everyone, and make sure that millennials feel less alone. There's no straight path in your career and life, and that's okay. It's honestly what makes the journey exciting. So let's get inspired together. I hope you have a great week.